You were a little um, concerned uh, earlier today that we were going to end up with three men talking about an issue that is primarily um, affecting women. So here I am. I'm not a token woman, though, I can assure you. You may have come across um, Clementine Ford's article uh, in the Fairfax Press uh, on the weekend. Uh, headed, A Disastrous Time for Abuse of Women in This Country. Her uh, initial motivation for the article, of course, was the SPAC, uh, if that's what it was, between Sarah Hanson-Young and David uh, Lionhelm last week. I must say I missed that because I was away on a writing retreat uh, with some of our postgraduate students. But I, I read her response with interest and was particularly then struck as she um, listed um, some examples of the gendered violence that's been perpetrated in Australia in the last month. In Sydney, Kui Yu was murdered and dumped in bushland. Her 19-year-old male housemate has been charged. In Carlton, Eurydice Dixon was raped and murdered and left on a soccer pitch. A 19-year-old man has been charged. Shortly afterwards, a 31-year-old man vandalised the site of her memorial with crude graffiti of a penis. In the days following her murder, he ranted on Facebook about the de de demonisation of men and later told media he did it purely as an attack on feminism. In Newcastle, an 11-year-old girl was abducted and repeatedly raped over a period of five hours. A 47-year-old man has been charged. In Carlton, only five days after the murder of Eurydice, and less than two kilometres away from where her body was found, a woman was dragged into a car and raped. Two men, Cricket teammates have been charged, a 23-year-old and a 26-year-old. In Queensland, 16-year-old Larissa Bilby was murdered and stuffed into a barrel. A 34-year-old man has been charged with her murder and also the attempted murder of another woman that allegedly occurred three weeks earlier. On Friday, police confirmed that two teenagers fatally shot in New South Wales were murdered by their father, who later killed himself. The murders were described as being planned and in the context of a long-standing custody dispute because there are some men in the world whose rage and hatred <coughs> for a woman eclipse the love that they have for the children they share with her, but both pale in comparison to the entitlement they feel for themselves. Is um, Clementine Ford's uh, commentary on that, obviously. On average, one woman a week, one woman a week, and a man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Women are the major group who suffer from family violence. One in six women, age 15 or above, 
have experienced physical or sexual violence by a current or former partner. For men, it is one in 16. Women are more likely to experience violence from a known person and in their home, while men are more likely to experience violence from strangers and in a public place. What strikes me about the, uh, the instances listed um, by Clementine Ford is that those are the public ones. We don't hear mostly about what happens in homes every day in our country. I'm really pleased that tonight um, this is being addressed, this issue is being addressed by a man. I think it's really important that men um, speak uh, to this issue of violence, particularly family violence perpetrated against women. Our church has an awful record in relation to this and I won't rehearse this I hope that you will purchase uh, the um, edition of St Mark's Review that's advertised here when women speak domestic violence in Australian churches, a rich issue that really maps out some of those um, issues for the church. But I'm really looking forward to what David has to say to us this evening. I guess I might add to Jane's comments reminded me uh, just of an experience I had only two weeks ago. I was at a men's breakfast speaking about um, some issues related to men's mental health and for some reason there was a, a man who um, was really very angry and arced up around um, things in a, in a quite inappropriate way really uh, that reminds me that men who are either perpetrators or feel aggrieved about the emphasis on this topic are in some form of distress and we have an ear to that. But it's still the case that women are vastly overrepresented as those on the receiving end of this kind of violence and it needs to be regarded, uh, that needs to be regarded as uh, a matter for address and response in its own right and I don't have any apology for St Mark's uh, in a way leading the way to become, I hope, thought leaders in what it is for churches to respond well to the specific issue of what's going on for women. It's my very great pleasure to introduce David Toombs to you. He's the director at the centre, um, sorry, director of the Howard, director at the centre for theology and public issues. That was well rehearsed, wasn't it? Director for the centre of theology and public issues at the University of Otago, and also the Howard Patterson Chair of Theology and Public Issues there since January of 2015. His current research interests do focus on religion, violence, and public theology, and especially on this topic tonight. Christian responses to gender-based violence, sexual abuse, and torture. He's all, he also has interests in uh, contextual and liberation theology and is the author of Latin American Liberation Theologies by Brill in 2002. David, thank you so much for joining us and we really look forward to hearing from you this evening. Thank you, Andrew. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, David and colleagues. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you all for coming out. 
a brief summary and overview of where I'll be going so you, you have a sense of it. I'm going to share a little bit to begin with on some context which I bring to tonight's topic. I'll talk a little bit about my theological uh, perspective in terms of Latin American liberation theology, then uh, a book I've read recently by Elaine Storkey, Scars Across Humanity, the Tear Fund reports that shaped my thinking about this issue over the last five to ten years, uh, particularly looking at some African case studies, and a current project I'm involved with for the New Zealand Institute for Pacific Research, looking at the Pacific region, and then move on uh, to the wonderful publication that's already been, been mentioned, the St. Mark's report, When Women Speak, and it's a particular privilege to come to St. Mark's and engage with that very important work. And then having spoken about those, I want to take us to the text, uh, or the three texts, the three passages you have in front of you from Samuel 15.20, and suggest with the context in mind from the first part, uh, we might see things in those three passages that we might not otherwise see. So quite a lot uh, to go over, uh, but in terms of the big picture, it's leading towards doing a more informed reading of these passages you have in front of you. Now, for me, Latin American liberation theology has been a very challenging approach. Uh, I found it very useful for opening up new perspectives on it. I came across it um, quite early in my studies and was very lucky to be able to do my PhD uh, on it, where I focused on El Salvador and Guatemala. The book where I try to explore its meaning and how it developed and the insights it offers was, as Andrew said, published by Brill in 2002. One of the things I really like about this book was uh, the cover is so good and that was absolutely nothing to do with me, but uh, I had a completely different suggestion for them which wasn't anything like as good, but they ignored me and came out with a great cover. And what I like about that is if you do judge a book by its cover, you have a great impression of this book. <laughs> Hopefully if you open it up and see what's inside, that doesn't change, but you don't have to do that to get a really good impression of it. The starting point um, actually relates to, for me at least, in terms of my journey engaging in a serious way with this issue, relates to a story that I came across after a visit to El Salvador as part of that PhD research. And it's told of this young woman, the young woman on the left, uh, Brenda Sanchez Gallen, uh, pictured here with her daughter and her partner. She was a Salvadoran uh, working during the Civil War in El Salvador. And there's a brutal story of how she witnessed the horrific execution of her co-worker, a health worker who had uh, no ties to uh, the insurgency other than providing health care for her villages, but was executed by the Salvadoran military in a brutal and sexualized way. And that story made me think about two things. First of all, how does one understand such extreme forms of sexual violence? And secondly, why are those sorts of stories, that sort of violence, not featured in the hugely insightful works of liberation theologians on other matters. <coughs> What's going on around the silence and the missing out of that sort of story? 
And that took my research off in a new direction, trying to understand both of those things in more detail. So both the, the violence itself, extreme act in this case of sexual violence, but also the silence that accompanied it. And I've been working in that area for some time. Just uh, the last couple of years, have the opportunity to read Elaine Storkey's book, Scars Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence <coughs> Against Women. And I think this is a particularly powerful contribution to the debate. Uh, as you may know, Elaine Storkey is a British theologian and sociologist. She's written quite widely on a number of issues, but this book, I think, is a particularly good one. And um, one of the reasons for that, I feel, is because she organises it um, in chapters, or most of the book is written in a sequence of chapters that take the reader through different types of violence a woman might experience at different points in her life, start, in her life cycle, her life journey. Um, so she, in chapter two, she talks about infanticide. Chapter three, she talks about female genital mutilation. Chapter four, early and enforced marriage honour killings and femicide, and particularly she links there to discussions around shame, which I'll come back to shortly. She looks at domestic and family violence in Chapter 6, trafficking and prostitution in 7, rape in Chapter 8, and then war and sexual violence in Chapter 9. She also has chapters uh, introducing those in terms of statistics and figures that help us understand violence against women as a global pandemic. Then she looks a little bit about what's causing this and has chapters on religion and how that interfaces with it. So I would certainly commend her book and those chapters if you're interested in going deeper on some of these issues. Another source that I found particularly helpful has been the sequence of reports that Tear Fund have issued. Tear Fund made a deliberate, a, a strategic but also a missional, as it were, decision to engage with sexual violence, particularly in conflict areas, and since 2011 have produced a number of, to my mind, very significant reports. This one, Silent No More, the untapped potential of the worldwide church in addressing sexual violence, uh, I found extremely powerful. It presents research on sexualized violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Rwanda, and Liberia, and highlights its main purpose is to highlight the need for an active church response. It identifies three key issues for the worldwide church in these terms. First, it argues that sexual violence is endemic to many communities across the world, but its scale and impact are largely hidden. Second, many churches, it says, and I think it's right, deepen the impact of sexual violence through silence, which reinforces a stigma and discrimination against survivors. And it argues that action is needed to overcome this. And thirdly, Churches worldwide, and especially in Africa, it says, have huge untapped potential to respond to the crisis as they are a key part of community life. So I'm just going to say a few words about each one of those three points. First of all, sexual violence is endemic to many communities across the world, 
and yet often its scale is hidden. According to the report, estimates vary, but it's believed that hundreds of thousands of women, girls and babies were raped in these three conflicts alone. Men and boys, it says, were also assaulted. In the war in Democratic Republic of Congo, some 200,000 women and girls were raped. In the Rwandan genocide in 1994, between 250,000 and 500,000 were sexually assaulted. And in Liberia, sexual violence was a recognised weapon of war. The second point, that many churches then, in response to that prevalent violence, deepen the impact through silence and by reinforcing stigma and discrimination. In Rwanda, Liberia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, instead of being part of the solution, Tear Fund's research found that the church has largely been part of the problem. Very often, it's remained silent on the issues of sexual violence. It's closed its eyes to the very real problem that is within its four walls, as well as out in the wider community. In doing so, it's failed the community that it's meant to serve. And then third, and in light of those two very grim first points, perhaps much more hopeful, or at least with the potential for hope, there is huge untapped potential in the churches. But there's a problem. This potential is not being realised. The churches are not rising to the challenge of sexual violence. When asked, many of the survivors that Tear Fund talked to, when they were asked the question, which institution is best placed to help you, their answer wasn't the UN office in the capital, it wasn't the United Nations in New York, it wasn't the National Human Rights Commission, it was the church. That was the institution that survivors said was best placed to help them. But in fact, they also added, in practice, the churches was, were not helping. The churches were largely detached on this issue. And Tearfund explored that a bit further and took the view that the churches do know what's happening, but when it comes to doing something, they are lethargic. That's actually a quote from one of their interviewees. The churches do know what's happening, but when it comes to doing something, they're lethargic. So what's going on here? How do we understand this? The church does have an extraordinary opportunity to make a difference for good, and survivors would welcome this. One said, to illustrate what could be done, if the church breaks the silence, it will enable us to talk about what happened too. So the church, in initiating a conversation, gives opportunity for survivors to also speak. But, and it's linked to a theological self-understanding within the church of what its mission and ministry is, according to the research, most church leaders and members see addressing sexual violence as being outside the church's mandate. In most contexts, it's not perceived as the church's concern. It's not seen as the business of the church. 
Another context which helps me look at some of these issues. Since moving to New Zealand, I've been very lucky to have the opportunity to be involved in a project uh, that's part of a consortium of New Zealand universities working in a Pacific context on church responses to violence against women with the title Totala Le Taui Ala Atua, rolling out the fine mat of scripture. The image, if you're familiar with Pacific culture, is rolling out a mat as a place where people are invited <coughs> to come together to engage in hard and honest conversations. And the idea behind the image is scripture provides exactly that sort of opportunity. And in the Pacific, scripture carries an enormous authority to have that conversation. The context of the project is UN women in their global figures on violence against women estimate that one in three women across the globe experience some form of physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. Yet, within the Pacific region as a whole, it's two in three women as an average. So there's a very high percentage of uh, prevalence of violence against women in the Pacific context. Also notable in the Pacific context is the very high percentage of people who identify as Christian and or active church members. So we've taken three questions to explore out of these two indicators. Two indicators, very high prevalence of violence against women, but also very high incidence of church membership and Christian identity. Three questions. Is there a relationship between the high levels of violence against women and the high rates of church membership. Secondly, what responses are the churches already making to violence against women? And thirdly, how might the churches do more through scripture and Bible study in their responses to violence against women? Now, one of the things which has already come out, this is uh, an image from a, an event we had at the Ministry uh, of Women, Community and Social Development a few months back. One of the issues which has come out is that silence, shame and stigma, just as they were highlighted in the Tear Fund reports from Africa, also seem to be a significant factor in the Pacific context. Dr. Ramona Budasingh writes, because GBV, gender-based violence, is an extremely sensitive issue, it's likely to factor into the reticence about reporting and disclosure by survivors. According to the Samoan Family Health and Safety Study, published in 2006, but actually carried out, the field work was carried out in 2001, 91.4%, so over 90%, of the never abused respondents, people who say they've never uh, experienced abuse, and over 92% of respondents who say they were abused, thought family problems should be kept private. Women who have been abused may also not report because they were worried about the consequences of shaming their family, <coughs> that is to say, bringing shame onto their wider family although abused respondents also cite personal embarrassment, their own sense of shame, as a factor. 
And this brings us perhaps closer to home, to here in Australia, a context that I'm still learning about, don't in any way claim to be an expert on, and will value your thoughts and insights when we move towards open discussion. But I've been interested in the public debate and some of the controversy that was prompted by Julia Baird's reports for ABC on domestic violence and the churches, uh, going back to July 2017, and on abuse of women married to clergy, November 2017. And of course, those reports take on even more significance in light of the wider Me Too movement and what we're discovering as to how common different forms of violence against women, sexual assault, sexual abuse, different uh, ways that sexual harassment uh, also features widely and in many different ways. How to understand uh, the evidence which is being offered as to how common this is in our society. One of the very useful sources for me in getting a sense of this was the St. Mark's report we've already mentioned. And if you haven't had a chance to read that report, I really can't commend it enough. Uh, it's edited by Jeff Broughton uh, here at St. Mark's, When Women Speak, Domestic Violence in Australian Churches, and came out in March this year. All of the chapters, I think, are extremely helpful, but the one that's been most useful to me in terms of thinking around the shame issues, which I see as important to this, is the one by Nicola Locke on uh, the church um, facing its shame. She's the lecturer in personal counselling and professional supervision. I'm sure she's very well known to many of you, but perhaps some of you don't know her work. I'm looking forward to meeting her for the first time myself in Sydney later this week. Her uh, chapter in the book offers a number of things. It gives a brief history of domestic violence in Christian settings and some of the literature which has been done on that. It uh, pays attention that this is not completely new for the church. In some ways, there's a sense of deja vu, though she doesn't use that, that term. She looks at what are often unhelpful responses uh, from the church to people who experience domestic violence. And then some of the most innovative work, I think, is in the next section, where she looks at what's preventing the church from responding to the issue of domestic violence and identify shame as part of what's preventing a more proactive response. She explores what shame is, she explores the dynamics around collective shame, and then she offers some suggestions on how the churches might do more to face shame. Let me just uh, offer a few highlights from the chapter, but as I say, it's definitely uh, in no way to replace the value of reading the whole chapter. Around the issue of the progress that the church has not made, Nicola writes, This disturbing fact of there being little apparent change in the experiences of women regarding violence in church over a 30-year period is the impetus behind this paper. Recent events in the Australian media, including the ABC series of programmes on the issue of domestic violence in the church and the explosion of Me Too, have highlighted the issue of abuse of women both in and out of the church. 
But, and she's already done this in the article, she's already shown that many of these issues were there and acknowledged 30 years ago. So given that this information is not new, what has prevented the church community from addressing a matter of grave and, at times, life-threatening importance? Beginning with the Project Anna study, she writes, it can be seen that there are a number of responses to women reporting domestic violence to their minister or pastor in the church community. But, and this is the key thing, not all of these are helpful responses. So this is in a context of exploring research which asks the question, well, what do women, particularly women who are in a church community, uh, do when they experience domestic violence? Of course, many will not want to uh, let others know what's happening, but uh, at the same time, there are others who will approach their church with this disclosure, but it is often the case the answers aren't helpful. The Project Anna report, which she describes as an earlier initiative, described how women frequently would not involve those in authority within the church for fear of the response. Others reported how when they did report, they were given inadequate responses, such as being told to accept God's will, suffer gladly, keep praying for healing, or be more faithful and the violence will stop. Now of those responses listed, it has to be said that there are even less helpful responses, and that last one is perhaps moving in that direction, responses which put the blame on the woman who is experiencing the Bible. And I think that, that last one is at least implicitly signalling where the blame is understood as belonging, utterly misunderstanding the dynamics around family violence and domestic abuse. So these are unhelpful church responses, failing to address the issue and or blaming the woman who is experiencing the violence. But what's valuable is to go beyond the egregious unhelpful responses of blame to look also at the dynamics of shame. And three particular dynamics are picked out, and they're subtly different and worth acknowledging the difference between them. So, for most persons, Nicola writes, who experience domestic violence, being shamed through the various types of abuse meted out on them is a typical experience. So many survivors are already feeling a sense of shame from the violence that they're experiencing. That is itself experienced as a shameful thing. That's the first type. The shame coming from experiencing the, the violence. Secondly, another form comes from being shamed by a church member when that person reaches out to help. She provides a quote of really uh, obvious failure to engage with the serious issues from a church member. And then a third form that um, states how difficult it was to even raise the matter with her minister, and when she did, she was ignored. Now this third type, I think, is subtly different from the second. It's not an actively negative reaction. It's a reaction of silence and detachment 
It's not wanting to engage rather than engaging in an unhelpful way. So we've got three different dynamics of shame here. The, the internalized shame for being in this situation in the first place, the negative reactions that you might get from people who actively say things which are dismissive or hurtful, and then a third sort of shame which come from people who just don't want to be involved, just don't want to take seriously where you are. Has anyone here either watched the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why or read the book? One at the back, a couple. It doesn't surprise me we haven't got many people here who have necessarily watched or read it, but probably there are others who have heard about it, and maybe there are some who've never heard about this. If I suspect you talk to young people in your church, if you talk to your church youth group, I would be surprised if the overwhelming majority are not familiar with this. Many of them will have either watched it themselves or they'll certainly have been part of conversations on it. I'm coming towards the end of setting the context for our Bible study and moving into the Bible study itself. And for me, the particular catalyst for doing the Bible study I'm going to look at with you was an invitation from Otago SCM, Otago Student Christian Movement, to do a Bible study with them around sexual violence. They were doing a series of events uh, linked in with the university's initiative on sexual violence prevention, and they asked me to, to offer a Bible study. Uh, 13 Reasons Why <coughs> have come out very recently, um, and it seemed to me that it was a good way of connecting sexual violence issues in popular culture to a way of reading a Bible story that I've been given some thought to but hadn't developed in any written way. So if you're at all interested or if you know somebody else who might be interested with where we go with the rest of this lecture, you're very welcome um, to uh, collect a, a copy. It's a rather sort of expanded copy of what I'll be offering an abbreviated version from, from the uh, web link at the bottom of, of this slide. So pretty much everything I'm going to be saying and rather more is available online uh, at this web link. If uh, it's tricky writing down a web link, I'm pretty sure it's on your, your sheet. So uh, on the, the sheet around 30 reasons why, or possibly on the other side of it. So it's on the other side of it. It's at the bottom of the two Samuel passages. You've got that web link. I'm not going to say much about Hannah Baker. This is Hannah Baker, um, who's being featured uh, behind me. I'm not going to say much, because I've sort of covered, I think, enough context for reading these passages and what I've said from other parts of the world. Uh, but the reason I did the Bible study was her story in the TV series and the book provides yet another context to be reading uh, these Bible passages, and one that seemed to me to put a pretty similar pattern to what we see in the three passages we're going to be looking at. So let me take you now to these three passages. I'm just going to have to quickly, hopefully, change how I'm displaying my slides.
the messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him at Jerusalem, Get up, let us flee, or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake us and bring disaster down upon us, and attack the city with the edge of the sword. The king's officials said to the king, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king decides. So the king left, followed by all his household, except ten concubines, whom he left behind to look after the house. This passage is set in the story of Absalom's rebellion against his father, David. It's part of a much longer sequence of family betrayals and broken alliances related by the narrator of 1 and 2 Samuel. When King David hears about Absalom's growing popularity in Israel, he decides to flee, fearing that Absalom is about to bring disaster upon both David's family and the city. David leaves, we're told, with his whole household in tow, except for ten concubines, whom he left to look after his house. We're not really invited to, we're not invited at this stage to give much thought to the Ten Concubines. When you read this short passage, the focus of what's happening is on David and on his desperate need to escape. Absalom is threatening to come against Jerusalem. David needs to get out. It seems a strange side detail, but not one to delay us too much, that the concubines are being left. But my suggestion to you is one way or another, they are being abandoned here. David may not know what he's doing. He may not know how much danger they're being placed in, but he is placing these 10 unnamed women in a great deal of danger. Because the action moves on, and we come back to the 10 women in the next chapter in 2 Samuel 16, 20 to 23, we may lose track of this. But this first passage is a story of abandonment. We connect with them again in 2 Samuel 16, 20 to 23. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, the ones he has left to look after the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom upon the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the oracle of God. So all the counsel of Ahithophel was esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So Ahithophel was previously a counsellor for David. It was when Ahithophel switched to Absalom's side in the dispute between them that it became obvious to David that 
the popular feeling had switched over to Absalom, prompting his rushed escape from the city. Absalom and his army occupied the city, and then Absalom says to Ahithophel, the advisor, the counsellor, what shall I do? And Ahithophel offers this extraordinary advice. The advice is to go into your father's concubines in the sight of all Israel to make yourself odious to your father. Now, different biblical scholars will interpret what happens in different ways. For some, and certainly there are conflict experiences where this would also happen, the experience of the concubines being taken in the sight of all Israel could have been a spectacular form of rape as a public demonstration of Absalom's power. For others, what goes on is more of a, a forced marriage, whereby Absalom takes forced possession of the concubines as if they are property of David and thereby claims David's status. Some would even say suggest that David is dead, at least metaphorically. In either case, and there might be other possibilities as well, but in either case of those interpretations, a, a public spectacle of rape or a forced marriage, in either case, the women are not asked their opinion on what's wanted. They don't, they're not expected to give their consent to Absalom taking them. So I think in either case, it's a, it's a story around public violation, it's a story around rape. And it's a story that most churchgoers, most Bible readers, would not have any problem, I think, in condemning Absalom for his actions at, at this point. The experiences of the concubines may not get much attention, but the evil of Absalom's action will certainly attract judgment. It is worth pausing and asking ourselves, perhaps, well, how did the concubines experience being left, their abandonment now much more uh, dramatic, really, in understanding that they were left in the previous chapter and this has now happened to them. When they knew Absalom was coming, how did they feel? How did they feel when they were taken in the sight of all Israel? How did they feel afterwards? Did they share their thoughts with each other? Did they keep largely to themselves? We don't know any of this, it's not shared with us. They're not made the centre of the action, and they're not given the agency to, to speak. But there are questions which I think we might think about. But in some ways, this is the obvious wrongness of sexual violence, and we shouldn't only recognise this part, there's another part to notice as well. David came to his house. This is another four chapters later. He came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to look after the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. So by this time, the action after Absalom raped the concubines has moved swiftly. He's pursued David. It's come to a battle. It's Absalom who has lost and in fleeing 
He's uh, died uh, hitting himself with the branch of a tree and being stuck in the tree. David has therefore survived this threat to his throne. He comes back to Jerusalem to take control of the city again. And here we're told in this passage the first thing that he did, when he, or certainly it seems to be implicitly at least, the first thing that he did when he comes to Jerusalem is go to his own house. How does he then react? Does he offer comfort, compassion and support for these ten women? We're told his action is to put, to have them put under guard and left as if shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now some commentators will point out that he could have done worse. And this is, of course, true. It would have been possible in the honour-shame context that he worked in to feel that the disgrace to them and therefore to him, the stigma of the shame that was contagious, needed, as it were, uh, what's sometimes referred to, mis mistakenly or unhelpfully, but I think we're all familiar with it, was honour-killing. Killing somebody who has brought shame into your family and onto you is the perception of it. So yes, of course, David's reaction to the concubines could have been worse, but it seems to me that it doesn't need to have been worse for us to see that it is bad enough. Yes, he has provided for the concubines to live out the rest of their days, but in effect, they are in a jail. The, the guard there is not so much to protect them, that might have that uh, aspect to it, but essentially it's their jailer. They are to be kept apart from David and the rest of society for the rest of their lives. And the reason for that, although it's not explicitly given, I think it's obvious enough in terms of the text, it's because of David's perception of shame around this. But the thing we need to notice is that that shame should only belong to Absalom. It's Absalom who's committed the shameful thing. It's not the concubines. The concubines are entirely innocent of what's happened in this context. And yet, in David's eyes, the acts of sexual violence towards the concubines has in some way shamed them. And because it's shamed them, he needs to keep his distance from it so that he doesn't feel it as a shame on him. Now, one of the things I think we can take from this Bible study, in light of the Tear Fund reports and some of the other contexts I've suggested to you, is, is this not the way that some in the church treat women who've experienced gender-based and sexual violence? Do they not make the same mistake that David makes? That's what Tear Fund is saying from their research in different contexts in Africa. That, I think, might well be one of the dynamics going on in some Pacific societies. And reading uh, the St. Mark's Review, I certainly think it's a question that might be asked about the Australian churches, or at least some Australian churches, in terms of how they respond to this issue. 
In light of that, when I was up in Queensland, University of Queensland, earlier this week at the Australian New Zealand Association of Theological Schools, it was interesting to see this poster, and it might be a poster that's also on display here at ANU and different uh, Australian universities as well. Uh, it's got the headline message that you can probably see, sexual harassment is never okay. But it's also got beneath that, that's probably too small for you to see, a message which I think was the message that David needed to offer the concubines but didn't. And that message is, if this has happened to you, you are not to blame and you are not alone. Help is available. That was the message that David needed, I think, to be said to the concubines. Not that you are violated, defiled, shamed, and you need to be locked up for the rest of your days. But this is not your fault. You are not to blame. Nor are you alone or isolated in this, and help is available to you. And that's precisely the message that the churches are in a position to offer all people who experience gender and sexual violence and other forms of violence against women and men experiencing family and domestic violence. But it isn't always the message which I think is sent in churches. To summarise before opening up for conversation, I started out very briefly by sketching some context which have helped me in approaching these Bible passages. Latin American liberation theologies, my studies in that area, and a particular story around a very, very brutal execution. Elaine Storkey's wonderful work, Scars Across Humanity. The Tear Fund reports, which are available free online if you'd like to look at them. Some of the work I've been doing in the last 12 months for the New Zealand Institute for Pacific Research with colleagues at the National University of Samoa and at Pula Theological College in Samoa. And this very significant report by St Mark's, When Women Speak. We've taken those contexts, and I've mentioned a, another context, the 13 Reasons Why Hannah Baker story, if you want to explore that further, but I haven't really said much about it this evening. But we've taken those contexts for a reading of three connected texts which are spread out, fragmented snippets really, between 2 Samuel 15, 20, uh, sorry, between 2 Samuel 15 and 2 Samuel 20, looking at those three texts as a story of abandonment, then a story of rape or violation, and then a story of second abandonment. In no way do I want to suggest that the first abandonment should be ignored or that the rape and the violation is not a significant focus for church attention. But what I am suggesting to you in terms of church responses to violence against women is we also need to think about this second abandonment and make sure that the churches are not following the example of King David in this way. Thank you.